At Emory University's Guizueta Business School, we believe in going beyond what is to build what should be. Because when you change your perspective, you change business for the better. And in an ever-changing marketplace, we seek to make our mark. To achieve more, build more, do more, create more. That's the Guizueta Effect. Hi, I'm Melanie Buckmaster, Director of Communications for Emory University's Goisweta Business School and your host. Today I'll be joined by Dan McCarthy. We'll take a look at customer-based corporate valuation. In 2021, IPOs hit an all-time record with 1,000 companies entering the scene, more than doubling the previous year. From investors to managers to board members, Business leaders need to understand the true value of companies, but many of the traditional valuation methods are outdated and incomplete. With increasing access to new data, astute forecasters are deploying new methodologies. Among these is customer-based corporate valuation, a field equal parts marketing and Wall Street, with a central focus on how customer behavior drives success. Dan joins to discuss which customer data points are most important to monitor and how investors and managers stand to benefit from this approach. Dan is an assistant professor of marketing at Goisueta Business School. His research centers on customer lifetime value, limited data problems, data privacy, and the marketing finance interface. He is regularly featured as a key expert with recent coverage in the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, The Economist, and CNBC. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Melanie. It's uh, great to be here. Today, we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about customer-based corporate evaluation. So let's kind of get a foundation and start with the basics. Can you explain what customer-based corporate evaluation is and how it's different from other more traditional evaluations? Yes, maybe even backing up a step, uh, it could be helpful to think about how it's similar to traditional valuation. The way that it's similar is that it's assuming the same approach to calculating value. Namely, that we wanna know what is revenue gonna be in the future for a particular company, and then what are expenses gonna be. And the game then becomes projecting those into the future, and that's a hard prediction problem. If you were to take a course on corporate valuation, they'll often take the revenue forecast as given, and then think through what the expenses will be But unfortunately, we can't do that in the real world. It's very hard to predict what revenue is going to be. And so what corporate valuation can help us do, for one, is to get a a much more accurate estimate of what future revenues is going to be uh, by really breaking it down into what the customers are going to do. So to get revenue, you have to acquire customers. They have to stay with you. They have to place some orders. There's going to be some spend associated with the orders. And so it's kind of a basic accounting identity that if we had models for each of those, if we had a crystal ball that told us what each of those behaviors is going to be in the future, that's got to give us what revenue is going to be. And then if we also knew how much we spent to acquire those customers in the first place, which we call customer acquisition cost, and that would also help inform what some of the key expenses are going to be as well. So it's really taking the traditional valuation framework and just augmenting it with an understanding of what the customers are going to do. So you're the founder of two predictive customer analytics companies, one of which was acquired by Nike in 2018. 
Along with Pete Fader at Wharton, you've spent countless hours studying and working to refine customer-based corporate valuation over the last several years. What interests you in this field of study, and what have you learned along the way? I found it to be really interesting, for one, uh, because of my background. Yeah, so I had been at a hedge fund for about six years before I came back for a PhD. Uh, my PhD was in statistics, and then I made this pivot into marketing in the second year of the PhD. And I view customer-based corporate valuation as really kind of operating at the intersection of those three because we're doing the corporate valuation thing, which is a finance problem, uh, but the way that we're going about it is by specifying these cool predictive models, which is a stats thing, uh, but they're predictive models of what customers are going to do, which is a marketing thing. And so it just, it's bringing together a lot of the things that I find to be fun. Uh, in terms of things that I've learned, um, you know, for one, I'd say the biggest one is the differences across companies can be quite fast. And so you can take companies that are operating in the same industry and they're gr growing at a comparable rate. Maybe they're both losing money. And we'll infer that one has strong unit economics and the other one does not. You know? And so there's just uh, a world of difference between companies that may otherwise look similar in terms of uh, traditional financial measures, which I think makes this uh, a very useful approach for investors because you know, it allows them to kind of sort out the good companies from the bad ones in a way that uh, they wouldn't have been able to before. Now that we know the method, who can use it? What groups and individuals benefit from looking at information this way? I really think that anyone who's involved with valuation can benefit from this. But what changes is the, the sort of data that may be available to them and the use cases that may be most relevant for them. And so if we're thinking about an investor, well, there's private equity investors. Typically, they'll have access to much more granular data. Uh, because oftentimes, if they're going to be acquiring a company outright, those companies are going to disclose a whole lot more data than you would get if you were, say, working in a hedge fund, looking at a company that's publicly traded, and the only data that you have is data that's available through you know, public company filings. That's going to be a much sparser data problem. In both of those use cases, they're obviously just going to be looking to kind of predict what revenue and expenses are going to be in the future and then use that to help inform their valuation decisions. So it is similar in that regard. When we move from investors to people within a company, there's kind of the executives and then there's like the marketing department. And there obviously the data is going to be extremely rich. You know, they'll have access to everything because they are sitting within the company. <laughs> they're going to be interested in valuation, especially if they're the CEO. They're going to be having to talk about their company, speak to Wall Street analysts about how they did every quarter. And so you know, certainly, they're, they're going to be keen to, to think about how this can help them communicate their value to external stakeholders. Uh, but the other key use case that may not be quite as relevant, especially for the hedge funders, is that they want to grow the value of their company. They just don't want to passively predict what's going to happen in the future. They want to know, you know, what levers can I pull on to, to make my company better over the next period? And mm -hmm. so, uh, so the great thing is uh, CBCV can really help all those different stakeholders. Yeah, it gives us the ability to make those revenue and expense predictions uh, better, like I mentioned before. Uh, but to the extent that we also have other data about those customers, we can say, well, you know, these customers are much more valuable than these other ones. And so if we, find, if we found ways to acquire more customers like our best customers, then that's going to help us grow our value in the future. And so again, that's much more of a, a value management 
um, task than it is a value measurement task. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it does sound complex. So is it something that an amateur investor could use to determine their portfolio? I'd say yes. Yeah, this is something that you can use. You don't need to have a very large budget to be able to do it. What I would say is you, you kind of need to have some statistical aptitude. <laughs> and so if you don't have a background in this sort of modeling, um, that can be a bit daunting. Uh, but I would say that I have a an Excel spreadsheet that lays out how you can do this for subscription-based firms that that I've made uh, available. You know, so to the extent that people are interested, I'd be more than happy to share it. But the fact that we have this tool available in Excel, and it's a very, fairly good model, uh, I think speaks to the accessibility of this to a relatively wide audience. You don't need to be using some hyper-sophisticated statistical programming language to do it. That would be great. And I'll definitely uh, include a link to that when I post this. So. Well, in your Harvard Business Review article, you mentioned that investors are often fooled by vanity metrics. When you look at customer behavior, what data points are most important and which ones may not be as telling? Yeah, the data points to me that are most important are data points that summarize customer purchase behavior. So we want to know all-encompassing figures that tell us what the customer base as a whole is doing. You know, so how many customers did we acquire this quarter? How many customers were active? How many orders were placed in the quarter? And those are the sort of data points that can really help inform the sort of model that we would build. So the sort of data points that are not quite as relevant for the sort of modeling that we would do are more sentiment-based measures. Oftentimes, uh, companies will disclose those, but there's this question of, OK, you know, that's cool, great. I'm sure people are happy. But I know that this is marketing material. I also probably know you're not going to tell me this figure again in the future. Companies don't want to put data points out there that make them look bad. And companies are not required to put any of this out there. And so because they can choose to put it in, they're only going to put in data points that make them look good. And so yeah, I think oftentimes you end up with this very uh, selected set of measures. Uh, and the definitions that are used for those measures are the best possible definitions. And so you kind of move from uh, cold, hard, auditable data points to marketing material real quick. And uh, those data points lose, lose meaning and lose value within the sort of measurement framework that we've been talking about. So let's talk about a real life example. MoviePass skyrocketed in popularity a few years ago after it lowered its monthly subscription to $10. And it amassed about 3 million subscribers at that point but it wasn't sustainable. So after burning through hundreds of millions of dollars, MoviePass shut down in 2019, and its parent companies filed for bankruptcy in 2020. Now MoviePass just relaunched on Labor Day with a three-tiered payment system. Using some of your methodology, what are you anticipating, and do you think MoviePass will be more successful this time around? I think they won't lose money as quickly. <laughs> Do I think that they will be successful? I'm still skeptical. Uh, so they've released a bit more information uh, about the different tiers that they're making available. My understanding is it still is not set in stone, and uh, the deal can vary by regional market. Uh, but my understanding is that uh, for their most basic tier, which is, I think, going to be the most popular tier, they're saying uh, for $10 a month, you can watch one 
movie during prime time per month or uh, three movies, I believe, kind of matinee shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously that, that's a lot less enticing or appealing to consumers uh, than the, the offer they had before. Before they said for $10 a month, you could watch any movie any, each day. You know, so one movie a day, it could be Top Gun, mm -hmm. it could be you know, some indie movie. Mm -hmm. um, but you could just imagine how many people would sign up for that and then watch you know, 10 movies a month. It's mm -hmm. a proverbial free lunch. Yeah. And the reason it's a free lunch is because a movie ticket, the national average price of a movie ticket is about $10. Mm -hmm. And so if the cost of the subscription is 10, then as long as someone buys one movie, the company's basically gonna lose money on that person. So this deal, it's, it's better, but then it makes you wonder um, how many consumers are gonna sign up for it. You know, so it's certainly gonna be far less than the three million that they had before. But I, I still wonder how the economics are gonna work. Um, I think it's a great example of the, the utility of uh, the sort of framework that we're talking about here, because you know, once again, you have a company that's probably going to grow revenue reasonably quickly. They may not have a whole lot of problems with customer adoption you know, to the extent that it still is, you know, a reasonably good deal. But the big, you know, the real big kicker for them is going to be, well, what is the variable margin that this company is going to get when people make purchases? And that, that's going to be the big open question. So you've done a lot of analysis around subscription-based businesses like MoviePass. Um, does customer-based corporate valuation work for other types of businesses as well? Very much so. And in fact, uh, you mentioned I started two companies. At both companies, we primarily did our modeling on non-subscription businesses. So subscription is definitely easier, uh, but we have models that predict very accurately in non-subscription settings. Mm -hmm. I've written uh, a, a few academic papers on CBCV. We had done an analysis of a company called Wayfair. Some of you may have heard of them. They're a furniture e-commerce company. After we had posted the paper uh, publicly, uh, within the next couple of days, the stock had tanked about 10% on no other news and ended up uh, getting coverage you know, from the likes of uh, some of the media outlets that you'd mentioned at the at the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it generated a whole lot of controversy. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about Wayfair, just kind of the, the journey they've gone through and where they are now. Oh, wow. Yeah, they've been so fun to follow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had posted our original analysis. I believe this was in September of 2017, so quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. and, and we basically concluded that, yes, revenue's growing very quickly, but their economics are not good. They spend a lot of money to acquire customers. Those customers, they don't place enough repeat purchases. And the, the margin that Wayfair keeps on the revenue that they get, it's very small. And so they're just not making enough profit after customers are acquired mm -hmm. to make the whole business viable net of the customer acquisition cost. Mm -hmm. So growth is great, but they're not really creating a whole lot of value mm -hmm. with that growth. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of beat that drum. Uh, all of the, you know, the next handful of quarters continued to validate exactly what we had been saying. Revenue continued to grow, but their losses got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what you would expect. Mm -hmm. uh, the stock actually kind of rebounded, moved up. And so for, for quite a while, 
you know, we were kind of saying, hey, look, the underlying financial data is agreeing with us. But everyone's saying, but look at the stock price. It just keeps moving up, so you must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually what ended up happening was they were borrowing more and more money just to fund their operating losses. And, uh, and their stock fell over. And right before the pandemic hit, they actually fell to within our valuation range. You know, so they plummeted. They had acknowledged that they were growing too quickly, and they uh, started mass layoffs. Uh, obviously, the pandemic changed all that. <laughs> so immediately they went from like single-digit growth in new customer acquisition to over 100% in a single quarter. So, And it kind of makes sense as to why, because 85% of all furniture purchases happen in stores. And so the pandemic shut down all the stores. So it wasn't surprising to see um, their revenue grow significantly, and in fact, their profitability too. Uh, but what's happened since then is... Obviously, the pandemic has waned. Uh, people, they got all the stuff that they needed for their work-from-home office. They're not buying that anymore. I think there was a lot of pulled-forward demand as well that's now in the process of undoing itself. And they're right back where they were. So now they're, once again, losing a whole bunch of money. I think there's, again, big questions about, well, what are their underlying steady-state economics? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yes, it's been qu- quite a journey. But uh, we're almost kind of back where we started. <laughs> That's fascinating. So we've talked a lot about the value of this approach, but I know there must be hurdles too. So what challenges do you face in evaluating companies this way? Yes, I'd say the the biggest hurdles for public companies revolve around the fact that we are beholden to the companies to disclose the data that we need. And again, as I mentioned before, the companies, they're not obligated to disclose. And so they will only disclose typically if the numbers make them look good. And there's also no uniform standards for what the definitions are of things like customer acquisition cost, contribution margin. Uh, If there were standard definitions, then at least for the companies that do disclose those data points, we kind of know exactly what it means. And so you can just imagine when you have selective disclosure issues, when you have the ability to kind of manipulate definitions, it could be easy to get suckered. It could be easy to kind of get hoodwinked into um, misinterpreting what the data might be telling us. So you're talking a lot about the need for standardization. Um, what role do and should policymakers and regulators play in this process? Yeah, it's really hard. We've actually spoken to a few regulators about these topics, and I think the the consensus is that it's going to be very hard to expect any sort of rules. You know, like companies, they need to disclose this. I would love for that to happen. And I think informal standards are forming, but I think the pressure is coming from the investors as opposed to the regulators. Mm -hmm. I think that we really need standards for some of these definitions. Uh, At the same time, I acknowledge that it's hard to come to standards that apply to all firms. And there's just inevitably gonna be differences from firms to, you know, from firm to firm. And then as we move across different industries, you know, it could be that um, one definition is better for one industry than another, mm-hmm. uh, or at least that there's complications that might make it a little less clean in one industry versus another. So I wanna be mindful of that. I think what I'm hoping is that we can converge to uh, industry-specific 
uh, informal standards. So what's next for your work and what excites you most about what's happening in this space? Well, yeah, I've got a few projects uh, ongoing to kind of take CBCV to the next level. The one that I'm very excited about is uh, applying deep learning models. Everyone's talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. And historically, it's been very difficult to apply those methods to the sort of data that we would use to do CBCV on public companies. I actually don't think that you can use those methods for public companies because the data is so limited. Yeah, so we just don't have the richness of the data to inform these very, very rich models. So we kind of have to dumb the models down a bit to account for the fact that the data is kind of dumb in that way. Mm -hmm. But there are other constituencies. You know, as, we, as we talked about before, managers have access to all the internal data. Private equity firms oftentimes have access to most, if not all, of the internal data. And so if you had super rich data, the question then becomes, what is the best model to do the same sort of exercise? And there has been no work done on that. And so what we're finding is that uh, there are deep learning methods uh, specifically suited to time series problems that have come up over the past five or so years that do a very good job of predicting the sort of things that would be the key inputs for a CBCV model. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really just kind of fleshing that out. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work with a company called Earnest Research. Uh, that's a credit card panel company. Uh, they basically have all of your credit and debit transactions data mm -hmm. for something like 3,500 companies. Yeah. Um, they have that data going back to the beginning of 2016. So really nice data set. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is we're kind of teeing that up with this deep learning problem to say, let's take their credit card panel and let's see how well we can predict for all other companies. Mm -hmm. And then let's understand when do these models perform well? When do they not perform that much better than what you would have gotten from the more traditional methods? Mm -hmm. And can we explain that as a function of you know, company-specific factors? And mm -hmm. so, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I, th I think it'll really uh, offer a lot of value to uh, both the kind of private equity-minded investors as well as uh, people who work within companies who may be looking at this, uh, you know, from a, a financial planning and analysis standpoint. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. You get the folks that looking at driving growth and things like that. Is there anything that you wanted me to ask you today that we didn't get to? Uh, well, I guess I'd also want to give a shout out to Kyungbin Kim. She's uh, my PhD student. She's a PhD student here at Emory. Uh, you know, we've been doing great work together. She's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the deep learning paper. So, you know, really exciting to see that come together. But uh, you know, it's great to be able to work on it with, you know, one of our up and coming superstars. So, yeah, so stay tuned and watch out for her. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Dan McCarthy is an assistant professor of marketing at Goisueto Business School. He joined today to talk about customer-based corporate valuation, including the critical role customer lifetime value plays in driving a company's success. Thank you, Dan. Yep, thanks again. This has been great. For more information about the Goisueto Effect podcast, please visit emory.biz slash podcast. Thank you.